good to see you guys all this morning again. Um, Manny said he has the AC on or, and that I need to take off my sweater because I'm going to get hot because I usually do, so I did. In submission to him, right? Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6? We're going to go through um, a series on worship for the summer, and I wanted to begin today. I thought we would look at one aspect of worship that's largely ignored, I think, in the modern church. Isaiah chapter 6, the passage that Jason shared with us. Why don't we pray? Father, we, we come before you this morning. Lord, we are going to look at this passage and quite frankly, it is, it is beyond us, Lord, this scripture. We pray that you would take your people up to that place Take your people to see the vision of Isaiah, to respond in, in the same way. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see your holiness, to see your glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and to hear your word even amidst distraction, we pray. Help us to hear your word. Help us to repent where we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, brother, can we do something about that? That's completely distracting. I don't know if it was moving or even if we closed the door or... Yeah. Thanks, brother. We're still trying to figure out this new facility, so thank you for your patience um, in this. Thank you. All right, I think, that, I think that does it. So here's a summer session on worship. Um, oftentimes when we speak of worship, when we hear that word, immediately within evangelicalism, immediately within churches, there is much heated debate. They start with music. What kind of music you should play? Uh, what kind of style should you play? Should you play old Gospel? Should you play old hymns that are with easy chords? Should you play contemporary praise music? Hymns versus contemporary instruments versus a cappella. Um, in other churches, uh, only if you, uh, some churches believe that you should only, only sing the Psalms. Others would say, no, written music is good. You can glorify Christ as well. But I think before we get to that portion, of how to have corporate worship. This is corporate worship. This is when we assemble and we sing praises to God. And thank you, Andre, for that. Where is he? Andre, thank you, brother, for, for that. We got to sing to Christ, sing to God the Father, sing to the Spirit. Before we even get to that, I think that discussion is further downstream. I think we need to look at what this text is saying, Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I cut it at verse 8. Most commentators cut it at 6 or 7. And there's a reason why. 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. One called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. See, oftentimes we come flippantly rather than truly understanding the one we ought to give praise to. I think, I think a lot of times we have an approach. Christians, evangelicals who claim the name of Christ have an approach to careless living, uh, to trite music, and I say trite music is so-called Christian music that has no truth, that does not speak about the Lord and redemption, trite music, shallow lyrics. They plague the church because of the lack, and I think it's the lack of the true understanding of God's holiness. I think a remembering and a deep meditation on the holiness of God leads us back to Christ and prepared to serve him. This and only this honors the thrice holy God. Praise the Lord for his provision in Christ. Here, Isaiah's prophecy was given to you this morning so you would worship God in his holiness. Worship God in his holiness. This is not a popular theme in, in, in churches today. But it doesn't really matter. This is what the word of God says. Worship in itself is a response to God. It is not the initiation. We think we start worship. That's not how it starts. Worship is man's response to God's Glorifying his son. Worship is man's response to God and his attributes and his excellencies. Worship is, and here's a loose definition I'm working with. Worship is exalting the triune God through the sacrifice of Christ by word, deed, thought, and praise. This is a fundamental response to who God is and what he has done. Worship is the logical, the reasonable response to the creator. The created's job, the created's job, his or her sole purpose of being here is to bring praise to God 
who made him or her. You see, this response invariably has three elements. And we're going to see how it's uh, all through this series. We're going to see these three responses. But I'm going to call them different in different categories to fit the better. Notice in verses 1 to 4, verses 1 to 4, we are called, you are called, to marvel at the vision of God. That's where it starts. When we get a glimpse of who God is, it shakes us to our very cores. This first element is this marveling, this this wonderment, this meditation, this focus on the goodness and the greatness of God. Notice his exalted person. In verse 1 he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, Uzziah reigned for 52 years in Judah from 790 to 739. In, in that time, Judah was undergoing a time of prosperity, a time of riches. There was a port in the Red Sea. They were having trade with different countries. The economy was humming. There were, uh, militarily they had walls, they were building walls and fortifications and towers. It was a time of great wealth. Notice in chapter 1 of verse 1 of Isaiah, he says in chapter 1, he repeats it. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham being his son, and he moves on to the other kings. Sadly, in his, in his pride, Uzziah thought he could be a priest too. And he decided to burn incense at the altar. A, uh, a duty that was only reserved for priests. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Second Kings chapter 15. And the Lord struck him with leprosy and he died. One could say that Uzziah did not truly view God as holy and separate. He was struck with a disease to accentuate the fact that he is wholly unclean and cannot approach God on his own pride, on his own works, on his own ritual. God determines how we approach him. Oh, we need this today. To stop and to pause and to think of the one you live your life for. To think your best thoughts of. To think of what you are to speak of. To think of who you are to serve. To think of the one you just sang to. Isaiah couches it in history back at chapter 6. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And here's this vision. Notice he says, I saw. This was the vision of Isaiah in uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 1. He says it was a vision. This is one of the ways God communicated to his prophets. He was singularly picked out by God so that he can see a glimpse of what heaven was like. He says, I saw the Lord. The Lord there, the word for Lord is Adonai. I saw him sitting on a throne. God himself was purveying all that he commands. 
The Bible says he was lofty and exalted. The word there for lofty means to be high, raised up, exalted, but has a similar definition to be lifted, to be carried up. His throne was highly elevated. He is the most high God. He is how we are to, that's how we are to look at him. The Bible says with the train of his robe filling the temple. That's the fringe of his robe, of his glory, of his majesty, of his rule. It filled, overflowed. His glory could not be contained. And here this is how God should be seen and worshipped. You notice his exalted worshippers in verse 2. In Isaiah 6, verse 2, he says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Seraphim, these are angelic beings. This uh, lexically defined are the burning ones. The burning ones. It's similar to Revelation chapter 4. If you take a look there in Revelation chapter 4, I'll read it for you. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass. If you notice, there's similarities between what Isaiah saw and what John saw. Like crystal in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Notice verse 8, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around. Day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Notice back in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, each having two wings, with two he covered his face. He, they covered his, their own faces because they could not look at the glory of God directly. They covered their feet, as commentators would say, to display their lowliness and humility and service. And with the other two wings, they to emphasize their service as they were at the beck and call of the one who was on the throne. You you understand. Isaiah is seeing a glimpse of God. He is going to, we know what's going to happen. Isaiah is largely going to speak to a people who will not listen to him. Uzziah dies in 739. Assyria comes and judges Israel and takes them away. The cream of the crop. But in that time between 739 and 722, Isaiah is going to call them to repentance. And he is largely going to have a ministry where no one encourages him. Where no one, where he never sees fruit. He never sees people turn to Uh, repentance in Christ and that is going to be his ministry but you understand this is what God does he allows Isaiah to see the greatness of God and what it does to him is it gives it gives him boldness and courage 
We'll speak more on that later. But as this happens, one calling out to another, you imagine these great creatures speaking out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. One's calling out to the other and the priority of giving Christ praise and worship is the primary preoccupation of heaven. It is what heaven is about, brothers and sisters. As we were sitting here singing, I couldn't help but think, this is what heaven is about. This is the sole desire of the Christian to finally give full, undivided, undistracted worship to Christ. And if you don't like singing to Christ now, you won't like singing to Christ forever and ever. I guarantee you, if you don't have a heart that worships Christ now, you will not have it for eternity. There's something wrong with your heart. The angels will not stop praising him. They keep saying, holy, 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 holy. In Revelation, it's in the imperfect tense. They kept saying it. Is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they cry out. It's amazing this priority of calling to one another as they are worshiping. As the holy preoccupation of heaven. It is what fully submitted creatures do when they glimpse his glory. And yet, we have to say that, sadly, giving Christ glory in our lives, in corporate worship, sometimes is is just a half-hearted commitment. We've got to be taken up to that throne room to remember who, who it is we're praising. When the saints gather, we've got to remember the importance of that. That it's not just us getting together and, you know, eating food or having snacks. It actually is giving praise to the one who sits on the throne. You have to have that vision, brothers and sisters. And I don't mean in a charismatic way. You understand that. You know my theology. What I do mean is, do you share in understanding what Isaiah saw? That the one we come to is holy. The word holy really means to be set apart. We understand that. Set apart in two ways. Set apart from all sin, wickedness, unrighteousness. Set apart to, so it's a set apart from sin, wickedness, vileness, the things that are disgusting on this earth. And a set apart to holiness and purity and righteousness and goodness. And so... The creatures, everyone knows, in all of heaven, knows what God is like. 
But because of his worth, you understand. Why are these creatures speaking back and forth? Praising him back and forth? Why is it in Revelation Revelation, the same thing over and over and over again? It's because of the worth of the one who sits on the throne. The Bible says, holy, holy, holy. It It is mentioned three times. It's moving from, it's to emphasize the quality of the person who, who is being attributed. And so he, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. He is holy. He is holier. He is the holiest in this superlative form. That's why he's worth it, brothers and sisters. He is the Lord of hosts. Notice he says... That is the Lord of his angelic army ready to wage war, ready to judge. That's the one we come to worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he says, this is what, as Isaiah is looking, he says he notices that the whole earth is full of his glory. Though this is a heavenly vision that Isaiah is looking at, this vision transcends to earth. He displays his glory all over earth. And he still displays his glory all over earth, yet man refuses to give him glory. The whole basis, brothers and sisters, of sin is that man refuses to give him glory. And wants to take that glory from himself. For himself. Let me show you. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Stick your finger here and we're going to go back. Romans chapter 1. After he speaks about how they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the glory of four-footed animals, birds, and crawling creatures, and, him, and then himself. He says in verse 20, notice what the text says. How long has God been showing his glory? He says, for since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes. What are those? He speaks about it. His eternal power. How? The very fact that this world was created, the very fact that it's held together is a display of his majestic power. And his divine nature, what does that mean? It shows his intelligence. It shows his beauty. It shows his, uh, the display of, of his divine plan, it says, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, if you but look, even at what creation tells us, the cooing of a baby, the beauty of the ocean, the majesty of the mountains, the infinite nature of, sky, of the skies and the stars, the innumerable stars, 
The Bible says over and over the glory of the Lord is shining and is speaking to mankind. Psalm 19 says day, day to day pour forth speech. Night to night pours forth knowledge. Since the creation of the world, God has been shouting glorifying himself, displaying his beauty, displaying his intelligence over and over and over again. And man refuses, notice he says, for even though they knew God, what does that mean? In every heart of every human being, there is this knowledge that there is a God that exists. There is this knowledge that there is a God who created all things, but they do not honor him as God. They don't give thanks. And they become futile in their speculations. What is that? They transform and they change their minds and they start to think their own philosophies, their own wasteful, their own pointless philosophies. And it says, and their foolish heart was darkened. At the base essence, brothers and sisters, sin is this. I will not give God the glory. I will do what I want to do and I will receive the glory. He goes, please come back with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're to marvel be blown away. Be struck. Not just at his exalted person, not just his exalted worshipers, but at his exalted power. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, notice it was shaking of simply of his voice. With smoke, smoke is, and the trembling harkens back to Exodus chapter 19, speaking of God's judgment. If you recall in Mount Sinai, it was filled with smoke and the mountain trembled. This is why we have to be careful, brothers and sisters. You see, this is where we start. What is God like? Then it informs what I say. It informs what I think. It, it informs even the simple things as to what kind of music I pick. What kind of songs do we sing? How do we do ministry? How do, we, how do we share the gospel? All of these things come back as they are informed by marveling at this vision, quite frankly, of his holiness. He is not like us, brothers and sisters. He is not like us. He is holy other not only are we to marvel but we're also to repent repent of your utter sinfulness notice he says in verse 5 to 7 here is what happens to Isaiah 
You have to personally confess sin. You got to personally confess sin. Notice after Isaiah sees the thrice holy God and, and the creatures continually praising him and his throne high and lifted up. Isaiah had uh, Isaiah had smoke before his eyes because he, he himself could not gaze completely at God. Notice this response. Isaiah says then, then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. As Isaiah comes to worship in this vision and to proclaim later on, we'll see later how he is commissioned. He is so overwhelmed. So taken aback by the holiness of God that it tore him apart to look at himself and to see his own sinfulness. He says, Whoa, that's a it's a curse. Curse me. This is my God. I have no hope. This is the God I say I worship. In myself, I am a ruined person. He's being completely honest. You see, what happens is when you catch a view of God in his totality, when you see him the way he is in scriptures, you can't help but look at yourself. And you see how I am not like that. We all are like that, if you're honest. One commentator said it this way. Isaiah let his audience know that before he pronounced woes on others, that's what he would do. He's going to pronounce judgment on others. He must first pronounce a woe upon himself. Having become aware of the holiness of God, he knew that his own sinfulness meant doom. I am ruined. He had just heard holy lips praise God. He now became aware of the uncleanness of his own lips. He was unfit to preach or even to praise God. In his wretched condition, he said, I am ruined. Why are you ruined? Isaiah says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. What does that mean? Out of the lips, the heart speaks. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So here, we'll notice this, that this is a common reaction that happens to people who really see the true God. This is why, this is why when someone comes to Christ, there is this awareness of their own sin immediately. 
We ought not come flippantly to God. We ought not think lightly of the gathering of God's people. We ought not think lightly of sin in our speech thoughts and thoughts. We ought not think lightly, brothers and sisters, how does this affect us? We ought not think lightly of when we sing to him. Do you understand? If in fact the praises he indwells, the praises of his people, then when we come to commit to give God glory, we ought to think that we are worshiping just as these creatures are, this seraphim, that these praises go up to his high and lofty and exalted throne. And yet... There is this tension we carry as Christians. We want to give him praise, but I know I'm a sinner. We want to give him praise, but you don't know what I've done. We want to give him praise, but you don't know what I've thought. This is what Peter said. You remember in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus brought the fish into the nets. Peter was in the boat in Luke 5, 8. Simon Peter saw this. He fell at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus didn't even say anything about sin. He didn't even talk to him about his sinfulness. He simply showed his glory and Peter knew what was up. He knew he couldn't hide behind the fig leaves of, of his own imagination. And you know that, Christian. You know that when God speaks, you know you can't hide anymore. John said this in Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, that is Christ, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He laid his right hand upon me saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. That's what John did as well. He saw, this is the Christ. And he laid at his feet. We don't even deserve to be in his presence, brothers and sisters. We don't even deserve to worship him. Paul, Revelation 3, 8 says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value. Notice he was a religious man. He was a Pharisee. He memorized the Pentateuch. But all of that is rubbish in surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Ezekiel says this in 128, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of his glory of the Lord. What is Ezekiel's response? He says, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Brothers and sisters, when we see God, we get to our faces. All the prideful speeches of man who say, oh, God didn't write the Bible. Or, and the prideful speeches of man who says, that's not my truth. I make my own truth. Oh, when you come and see the throne of God, you will know what's up. You will not stand before him. This is why Philippians says, every what? Knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Either in this life in love or in the next life in utter, utter despair and judgment. I 
I live among a people of unclean lips. Not only am I filthy, but this people who live with me are, are filthy. And he says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Here's amazing. Were we to end the text there and go home, we would have no hope. Truth be told, in the mirror of God's word, we're all filthy, isn't that right? But I'm glad it doesn't end in verse 5, but it continues to verse 6, right? Personally confess in verse 6 and 7, personally receive forgiveness. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Notice, where does he take the coal from? He takes it from the altar. The altar is where the sacrifice was burned, right? This is the picture in the Old Testament. The altar is the basis, is the picture of the basis of where we find forgiveness, correct? The altar is a figure of Christ. Now you're going to say, Angelo, I think you're pushing it too much. You guys who preach Christ-centered, this is what they always say. You guys who preach Christ-centeredness find Christ under everything. You know what? Just stay with me, okay? Notice he says here. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Man, a burning coal. I was making a pot of ramen and I burned my hand before. Have you ever burned your hand? Ah! Immediately my skin started to change color and I have to put it under cold water, right? Is that right? He says, a burning coal on my lips. Do you know true confession and repentance? Did you know it hurts? Are you guys with me? The husband who actually has to say, it is my fault. I have sinned. With no excuses, no minimalizing the sin. Not saying I did it because you did it or did this or, you know what, it's not that bad kind of thing. It is embarrassing. It is painful. The wife who has to actually has to ask forgiveness from her husband. The father who has to ask forgiveness from their kids. Kids who have to ask forgiveness from their mom and dad without making excuses. The leader who sins against someone who serves under them. You want to know why people don't like to confront others with sin in the church? It's because it hurts. It hurts to deal with it. It hurts for you to come and actually repent. Brothers and sisters, it's a necessary hurt. He says here, it's God's purifying work. Your iniquity is taken away. Amen. 
Your sin is forgiven. Now, you're looking at the text and you're saying, how is this a figure of Christ? The cross, the cross is, is, uh, doesn't look like a coal. This looks, how is this even pointing to Christ? This is an amazing verse. Okay. This is a vision of Christ and his forgiveness as he gives to those who repent because of his work on the cross. I'm not saying the seraphim is Christ. I'm just saying that the basis of our forgiveness is in, through, is in Christ. Notice in um, Isaiah 6 verse 8. Notice this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and this is afterwards, okay? This is after our text. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me famous acceptance of Isaiah and the famous missionary call. Verse 9 says, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, do not perceive, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, just as they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Do you notice the verbiage there. Now, keep your hand here and go with me. You have to see this in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Now in John chapter 12 in verse 35 Jesus says this. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He's talking about himself. I am the light. Light is, this, uh, is a metaphor of two different categories. One, light from ignorance, moving from ignorance to understanding, biblical understanding. Light is also moving from immorality to righteousness. So light has the element of both morality and of understanding. And as he says that, he says here in Luke, excuse me, John chapter 12, 35. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that is himself. So that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes while you have the light. Believe in the light so you may become sons of the light. And these things Jesus spoke and he went away hid himself from many, from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Look at verse 38. You guys watching? Look very carefully. He says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with, them, with their heart and be converted and I, I heal them. Notice, John directly quotes Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this is John's commentary to help us understand. Look at verse 41, okay? These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Whose glory? 
Whose glory? Who did Isaiah see? Who did Isaiah see high and lifted up? Who did Isaiah see with the trembling and the smoke? Who did Isaiah see with the seraphim worshiping holy, holy, holy back and forth? Who did Isaiah see? He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. High and lifted up. And he gave forgiveness to Isaiah based on the work that he himself would do. And in this instance we know, going back to Isaiah chapter 6, in this instance we know that the cleansing that Isaiah received was for ministry. It wasn't the salvific uh, cleansing when you first become a Christian, but it does speak of it. Notice he knows we know that because it's going to start to happen in verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Who shall go for us?" Now what I what it's, it's pointing to is this: God is asking Isaiah, "Will you speak for me?" Isaiah is already knowing that his lips are unclean. How can I do this for you, God? And this is what the experience of the Christian is, isn't it? You've sinned. You've made a mess of things. You said something you shouldn't have. You had an outburst of anger. You did something that you wish you didn't do. You want to change it. And you go before God and you say, How could you use me, God? How could you ever use me again? How could you have anything to do with me? And he cleanses your lips with a coal. He washes you again for ministry, brothers and sisters. You can get back up that as far as the approach is to God himself, you can come near because we have a throne of grace. You can come near because we have a Christ who washes us from our sins. Brothers and sisters, he prepares you for ministry. You can get back up. Amen. Amen. Worship ends when you finally not only think of and view and marvel, but you submit. And you ask God for forgiveness. Help me to get back up. And he washes you completely. The very tool that Isaiah was going to use was the tool that God cleaned. Amen. Lastly, give yourself to service. In verse 8, there's God's call you know. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? This sending is a commission, very much like the commission in Matthew 28. The us does point to the Trinity. It's not a proof of the Trinity. It does point to the Trinity, the triune Godhead, just like the us in Genesis chapter 1. Here's the response of Isaiah. Knowing his extent of his sin. Knowing the greatness and the grandeur of God in Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah saw the glory of Christ himself. Knowing that he received the forgiveness that he needed. He says, here I am. Me. This ruined man, this ruined woman, brothers and sisters, we are ruined people. filthy tools we got from Second Timothy, right? Come, use me again. That's where worship leads. Worship doesn't just lead to singing a good song, going home and living your life. Worship doesn't just lead to, oh, that was a nice service for me. It made me feel happy. That's not where sisters. Worship leads through this process of us Finally, remembering who God is, submitting to that, and now serving him in gratitude and in love because he forgave sins. Isaiah needed to know the extent of sin and the overwhelming reach of Christ's forgiveness to receive this commission. He's not prioritizing his own desires and needs. He just wants to serve Christ. He's no longer encouraged to do the ministry he has been assigned. So to worship God in his holiness, brothers and sisters, marvel, sit there, marvel at the vision of God. Recall what he is like Study his excellencies and his attributes. Worship the God in how he declares himself in in the word. Repent of your utter sinfulness as painful as it is. Let the coal burn you. Let it burn and purify you, brothers and sisters. You will come out better on the other end. More useful. More faithful. More thankful. You'll come out better on promise you promises you but you got to be honest and you got to confess and you got to repent and give yourself to service that's where it, the energy brothers and sisters comes from many of you have given yourselves to serving Christ and I, I love you and I see that and the reason why that keeps the Lord keeps energizing you is because you you remember what he did for you. You can't get over his graciousness and his love for you. And you serve him 10, 20, 30, oh, 40 years. You'll serve him until you die. And give yourself to worship. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you that you have given us your son. You have given us his, a vision of him. Hebrews says, you have spoke to us in portions in the past, but now you have spoken to us in son. He is the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your nature. And in that we find forgiveness. 
God, help us not to be flippant with who you are. And help us to sing and help us to serve. Lord, if there's a believer here in the church who's not serving, I pray you would give them the fortitude and remind them of their forgiveness of Christ and they could keep serving again. But they must deal with their sin. We pray, help us to sing. Amen.